Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Marcy. Uh, today joined by, you've been a guest a few times, Keith Grossman, president of Time. Um, had been on here before when you were at Bloomberg. You've now been at Time since July. Mm-hmm. I want to get to the decision to go to Time because I think it's really interesting because you were at Engine very briefly. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I was shocked. I was like, you're at Time. Um, explain making them. I'm, I'm sure like there, this was like a unique opportunity. But at the same time, I'm really interested from like a career perspective about, you know, there's probably pressure to like pass it up. No, no. Actually, it was interesting. When I loved my time at Bloomberg, I was there for five years. Yeah. And every year we were there, we grew at double digits. And in the final year, we grew, we launched TikTok, which is now Quick Take, uh, you know. That was Justin, tough timing, by the way. I mean, naming. Yeah. Uh, Justin, uh, you know, launched the new economy forum. We had a really successful year. We ended the year up uh, 16%. And for me, like what I was struggling with personally was uh, my entire career, I was very much in the revenue track. And um, the advice I kept on getting was in order to one day ultimately become a president or CEO, I had to diversify myself, move myself into a horizontal sort of um, uh, role, a COO role. And uh, the opportunity at Engine presented itself, and I thought that I was going to be there for two years or so um, and really begin to understand how to think about um, bringing together 13 disparate companies and, and really sort of turning it into one cohesive unit. And I was talking one day to um, uh, Greg Sedlock over at Spencer Stewart, and uh, this just goes to show how weird and serendipitous life can be. At, at, I asked him his advice on something, and at the end of our conversation, I was walking out, and I turned around, and I said to him, Greg, um, thank you. That was, like, really helpful advice. Like, how can I ever return the favor? And he said to me, do you know anyone who wants to be president of time? And I said, what are you talking about? And uh, he said, well, you know, Mark and Lynn bought time uh, back in November, and they're looking at how they want to involve, evolve it and how, where they want to invest in it. And uh, they need more than just a CRO, and they're building out the team, and um, they're, they're just looking at the marketplace right now. So mm-hmm. I said, do me a favor, send me uh, the JD for it, and I'll, I'll give you some people who I think might make sense. And that night he sent it to me, and uh, 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 I read it, and I sort of was like, whoa. I've done everything here other than run consumer marketing. And uh, I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I wrote Greg a note and I said, Greg, if I wanted to throw my name into the game for this, would you um, allow me to sort of uh, be considered for the role? If not, no worries, I'll send you some other names. And he said, let me speak to Edward, uh, Edward Felsenthal, the CEO. And um, next thing you know, Edward said, uh, let's meet on Friday. We had a half an hour. And uh, the half an hour went two and a half hours. And Edward, at the end of the meeting, said, what are you doing on Monday? And I said, well, I'm going to London. And he said, it's a shame. If you were free on Monday, I'd have you meet with Mark. I said, Benioff? He said, yes. So I said, well, if you can get me a meeting with Mark Benioff on Monday, and it was Friday at 5.30, I go, I will, um, I'll move my trip to London. And so um, Edward takes out his phone, and he texts Mark. And Mark uh-huh. gets back, and he says, sure, I'll meet you on Monday at, uh, uh, I think it was 9 a.m., and so I changed my my trip around to London. Monday morning, I met with Mark. Um, uh, coincidentally, it was the day that Salesforce bought Tableau. So the 9 a.m. meeting moved to 12 because he was on, wow. on the news and everything. And 
three and a half weeks later. Talk about later, multitasking. I, I mean, it was, it was right? <laughs> um, I mean, that's not like a small deal. No, not not in the slightest, right? Um, I was I was blown away that, that, that he still kept the meeting, but it was an amazing... Um, that's a power move. Do some multi-billion-dollar deal like before lunch, right? And then, and then, we, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know how to respond to that, right? Like from from my end, but I, um, it's like, how was your day? Um, <laughs> Spent uh, a few billion. Uh, but but then, uh, you know, I met with Lynn, his wife, and you know, everyone at time, and and uh, you know, the family office because we're a privately owned entity of yeah. the Benioffs, and. Um, so what attract? But what attracted you to the opportunity? Because I mean, I think a lot of people would look at Time as a quote unquote legacy publication. Mm-hmm. Obviously, having um, a billionaire benefactor. Maybe we can talk about whether it's a benefactor or like uh, an owner wanting to make mm-hmm. like a real profit is an advantage. But you know, I, from the outside, it would seem like a pretty challenged brand. It went through a f- uh, uh, several uh, tough years. Sure, changed so, hands. I think. Um the answer to that is is how I think I look at the industry, okay. which is um, I look at the industry ultimately as it's it's an amazing industry. I love this industry. I think that more people should come into this industry as um, as people think it's a scary industry. Yeah. Um, I remember we talked about one time doing like a confessions of an optimist. I, I love I, <laughs> right? all of our confessions not, are like these like distraught. Well, it's all anonymous <laughs> pessimists, and I'm willing to go on the record as an optimist. And you know, like Warren Buffett has a great quote of you know, be fearful when others are greedy, and greedy when others are fearful. And I think that this is a great moment where, if you have the support, um, and you know, the intent of time is to be a profitable business, and it is moving in that direction and we are up in Q1 or, and we are well we're up in January we're projecting up in Q1 we are going to be we're aiming to be profitable this year from a cash flow basis but uh, and that's our intent is to run a responsible business but mm-hmm. um, if you look at my career uh, I went to Wired and I started at Wired um, the week after it was about to uh, be closed for the dot com uh, bubble that was my first job as a sales associate I worked on launches, I work on turnarounds, and I work on saves, right? So, like, okay. like I like the idea of um, if the business is ultimately Debate Club meets Investment Advisor, the Time brand is one of those incredible brands that mm-hmm. has an incredible 97-year history. Um, it actually has great foundational elements of it, but it's gone through, I would say, 10 years of neglect um, through mismanagement, through transitions of owners. And now that it has dedicated, focused resources, I think that we're in a really strong position to um, evolve the Time brand to really capture the attention of, of the next generation of consumers. And from my perspective, as I kept on looking at the deck and assessing this opportunity, what I really saw was the challenges at the end of the day was this evolution of Time magazine to Time, right? because everyone will call it Time Magazine and you have to sort of evolve it to the Time brand. And then is it relevant to the next generation of consumers? Yeah. Right? And when you look at the second part first and you look at all of the hard work that... um, Well, that's critical, right, to the strategy. Because, I mean, you can milk legacy brands that mean something to a certain demographic. I mean, like, good housekeeping is a fantastic... It's a good business. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean it, it's got a challenge. So let me ask you a question. Who do you think reads Time magazine from a demographic perspective? The magazine yeah. itself? Mm-hmm. Um, Just give me the most general demographics you can possibly imagine. My mom. Really? So you think it's an older female? 
Yeah. Okay. So I either get older female or older male, right? Um, if you look at time on its social feeds, right? On Twitter, we have 16 and a half million followers. On Instagram, eight and a half million followers. On Facebook, 12 and a half million followers. Um, LinkedIn, two million followers. Well, you said the magazine. Hold on. I'm going to show okay. you for a second. The demographic of that, 61% under the age of 35, uh, 52% female, and 33% non-Caucasian. And so what you find is, is that you have this entire aspect of the Time brand, not the magazine, that reaches a completely mm -hmm. different demographic that is showing the value to the next generation. The issue has been that none of those areas have been productized. None of them has been marketed as Time the brand. Yeah. It's always been sort of presented as Time magazine. And so when you think about it, you don't want to discount the magazine's value. The magazine's value is tremendous. The reason that we have such huge... Um, uh, footprint socially is because of the history of the 97 years yeah. that we have as the magazine. But um, the brand has evolved to a new generation to mean something totally different. But I guess, how do you square both sides, right? Because mm -hmm. when I think of, of time, again, mm -hmm. from the outside, like I think of two halves. There was like the sort of D-Day commemoration issue half, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that is like outrageously profitable, mm -hmm. um, which is obviously for a different generation. And then there's that kind of like, I don't know, I feel like time went into that sort of viral content sort of thing where like there's a ton of, you know, Facebook friendly fare and, and um, social content that, you know, gets, gets big numbers. And a lot of people got those kind of big mm -hmm. numbers. But mostly undifferentiated kind of stuff that, um, you know, it just it's it's feeding the internet beast. No, I, I I think that that's a fair assessment of the marketing industry or the media industry. I don't necessarily agree that that's where we've gone with time on social, but yeah. I do think that what's happened, if I can sort of step back for a second, is is if you look at sort of the industry at large, um, historically, a brand. Um, served as the demand within the marketplace and the supply was the consumer, right? Mm -hmm. And that was when time was just a magazine. That's when everyone was just a magazine prior to the internet, prior to the ubiquity of connectivity of all of these devices. When all of a sudden everyone is connected, um, a really interesting thing happens, which is that the supply becomes the brand, right? Like time becomes the supply mm -hmm. and the demand becomes the consumer's time. Right. Uh, and that's the only thing that everyone is sort of focusing on is, is like, how do you capture the consumer's time? Now, what's interesting against that equation is, is that when a brand is the supply uh, and the supply is ultimately unlimited, like your job is, is you have to think about sort of what's the value that you provide and what's the utility you provide. But it doesn't mean that you have to do that holistically across everything in a um in a, in a synergistic way. What it means is, is that you have to think about what is the experience that the consumer wants and then how do they actually perceive your brand? So in a world of infinite choice, you think that that's actually a dream. But what actually happens is, is that the consumer with their time is paralyzed because they have like unlimited mm -hmm. selection. And so where the time brand actually presents a tremendous amount of power is in this red border. Now, the red border for some people manifests itself as a print magazine, right? And that's one way of experiencing sort of the red border. 
For others, it just manifests itself as as online video, right? We produce 400 digital videos a month. Um, for some people, it is how we do our Twitter handle and how we give people mm-hmm. sort of information and news in that area. In some instances, it's digitally. In some instances, like we will move into to the audio space. But I think that for us, what we want to realize is, is that People don't have um, relationships with platforms anymore. They have relationships with how they want to experience the content. And then secondarily, um, certain demos are going to experience the content completely differently. And it's our advantage to say, well, if we know that the magazine reaches an older demographic and we know that Time for Kids is a younger demographic, why wouldn't if we ever consumerized and productized Time for Kids in a manner that can be sort of a, a toy for uh, a child or a kit for a child surrounding education, why wouldn't we promote it to the older demographic that's probably the parent or the grandparent? And so we have to think mm-hmm. about the different demographics that we're going to be balancing. So in that, like, you, you talk about the sort of infinite, that allows infinite sort of business choices, which are, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. It's better to have optionality. But at the same time, you can try to be too many things to too many people. Mm-hmm. So not a magazine brand, um, but... What are the areas you're going to focus in? I think what we're going to focus in is how does the consumer want to ultimately experience the brand? Do they want to read it? Do they want to listen to it? Do they want to view it? Do they want to share it? Do they want to experience it in person in a tactical manner? Um, And then ultimately, how do we want to apply the filter, the red border against those experiences. Now, we're not going to play everything, but we have to be able to play a lot of games. And I do think that... Let me just get sure. explain why you have to play a lot of games. Because earlier we talked about mm-hmm. these games and you talked about almost like 20, I think it was. Yeah. And that seemed like a lot. Is that just to like winnow down into like, here are our big bets? Yeah, to, to an extent. I mean, I think that one of the things that this industry does really well is is it identifies what somebody's done and then it tries to replicate it. Right, you see that with subscription models, um, you see that with uh, uh, digital video and podcasts, and then people just constantly repeat, repeat, repeat. Yeah. Um, there's certain things that that you could see work and resonate with the consumer, but it doesn't work with every single brand, right? So, like, sure. I feel pretty strong about um, uh, putting paywalls up, right? Um, I think that there's a value in in cordoning off and and understanding communities, but in the general area, right? Like we may have seen peak paywall, right? Yeah. Uh, and and the numbers, uh, according to Neiman Labs, have shown that, you know, consumers only want one news source on a paywall that like, uh, that, that unless you're one of the big players that have already established yourself, like you're not um, capturing more of an audience. And um, uh, there are other sort of philosophical areas surrounding paywalls that are scary in their own right. Okay, so is, paywalls is, is is not a game you're going to play. We're going to play and look at certain communities, but on yeah. general news, like the area where I think is sort of table stakes for our game, we're not going to put a paywall at the highest level of time. Yeah. How about display advertising? Is that a game you're interested in playing? Or is that just like, you know, you sighed. I, that might well, be a good answer. Well, no, no. I mean, display is, is, is interesting. Um, it's not a game that uh, will be the long game uh, yeah. for the brand. Um, uh, definitely. Like, it will evolve. Um, but I think that display is, is around for the next few years. Uh, but it's going to be a game mm-hmm. of managing attrition as it goes down. Yeah. Um, and you have to do programmatic well and, and stuff that you're well 
Yeah, but you know what's what's interesting for us, and this is where um, when I said you asked me why I took this role, and every time I kept on looking at sort of stats surrounding the brand, I saw some really interesting things. For instance, seventy-five um, percent of our traffic digitally is on a mobile device, right? And so for us, you know, as Google eliminates cookies, and uh, you know the the industry moves in that direction. As we're building up a brand, like this is actually a huge opportunity for us. So explain that why I would think for a brand like Time, particularly within its its um, display advertising business, this elimination of of third party cookies that's going on, particularly on the browser level, would be fairly negative. It would be. Um, this is where I have to take a completely biased, uh, unfair position, which is uh, what what was purchased was a brand and an editorial team. And what uh, my team has been very busy building over the past few months has been a lot of infrastructure and um, uh, centralization of data. Uh, and understanding our consumer, which we're not perfect at yet, but we're moving in the direction of just beginning to understand more and more and more. Um, the benefit to us in this one moment in time is is that we did not hoard or have a tremendous amount of data already. Yeah. So, like, it's not as if we spent years building up third-party data that all of a sudden we have to sort of find useless and then start building, a, you know, first-party data. For us, as we get into our conversations, our conversations are, if we're going to start to build and understand how we're going to centralize data, like, we're going to start from a first-party perspective. We're not going to start from a third-party mm -hmm. perspective. It sounds like reading between the lines, maybe you actually said this, is that the commercial infrastructure was neglected quite a bit. I, I I did not. You should not read between the lines. The commercial infrastructure <laughs> okay. was definitively, neglected. and that's normal. When you know, look, it was yeah. it went through some some weird years where yeah. it was like owned by someone who wanted to unload it, um, and so they're not. You're not going to like invest in tons of stuff. But but here's what I saw, and this is what I think is amazing: is for the people that were there and the people that proceeded, um, what I saw was a group of people who. Uh, essentially went arm in arm and locked and made sure that that a brand that they cared about that they loved yeah. um, made it through a very difficult time and to that extent you know I have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, the editorial team who you know um, created a product that continued to, to deliver on many different platforms um, and even for the people who are on the business side who uh, without support, found themselves, um, you know, finding ways to just keep the lights on. And, you know, since I've joined and I've been there for six and a half months, we've hired over 50 people on the business side. Um, prior to me joining in the six months prior, we hired uh, over 50 people on the editorial side. And so what we're finding is, is that uh, you know, we're staffing up and bulking up an organization that was very much neglected over time. Yeah. So explain what the revenue portfolio is now and then where you see it being in a couple of years. Sure. So today I would say that a lot of our um, uh, revenues divided into what I would say is, is a B2B camp, a B2C camp, and then Time Studios camp. Um, Time Studios is our long-form uh, video um, an entertainment division. It's run by individual by Ian Orifice, who is 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 brilliant in his own right, and uh, that is the stuff that you see like Netflix. You're in space, right? This is right. where um, he's out um, creating films like the Aretha Franklin film that you know ends up on Netflix as well, um, or in the Tribeca Film okay. Festival. It's a studio business that it's 
The revenue comes from licensing? It comes from uh, licensing, deficit financing, and okay. creating long-form long content. Then there's the B2C uh, business, which is uh, subscriptions. And right now, that is primarily print-based subscriptions. And we're going to evolve that to think about um, community-based subscriptions or, you know, like how do we uh, think about uh, time for kids and creating things like uh, little passports for time for kids, if you're familiar with that sort of, it's a birch box for children. Yeah. Um, and then there's the B2B business and B2B business is run by uh, Vic Degtar, Victoria Degtar. She always corrects me on that, who okay. is uh, our global chief revenue officer. And uh, endlessly uh, brilliant individual as well. And her role is is to think about uh, if we're going to work with marketers, how do we command uh, partnerships and how do we develop partnerships for marketers? Um, in that world, it's interesting. Our revenues are um, print, digital, and events today. And I think that when you start to look at print and events specifically, you have two really verticalized areas, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, but when you look at digital, digital is a horizontal, and it's not just display advertising. So um, there's a significant amount that's display. Uh, there's a significant amount that's custom content. Um, there will be an increasing amount that is uh, social. Um, there will be an increasing amount that is video. Uh, there will be an increasing amount that is audio. Um, and these are things mm -hmm. that we're building out today. So where are you? Where do you see yourselves being under-indexed when it comes to these opportunities? Because there's a lot of opportunities. Let's just stick within that B2B portfolio. Mm -hmm. I assume it's the biggest. Where do you think you're sort of under-indexed that, that the growth can come from? I think we're going to continue to refine and invest in the product. Um, and, and you're going to see that the time.com experience... Um, uh, mobily specifically is going to evolve drastically over probably the next year or so. Um, what our um, community-based strategy is 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 under under-indexed today. Um, how we um, how we think about uh, the social platforms and how we distribute content on the social platforms. I think we do a, a good job today, but I think we'll evolve. Um, uh, and I think audio is an area that we're keen on understanding. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where we do really well is on, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, documentaries and truth-based impact stories, um, uh, the humanization of things. Uh, and I think that, that audio does a nice job there. Yeah. Are you focused on diversifying away from advertising? It seems like everyone now wants to talk about things, everything other than advertising. Uh, there's going to be elements that we're going to have advertising as part of the equation. And then, you know, we have elements where B2C is going to be part of the equation. Um, I like, I think that the way in which we partner with marketers is going to be completely different in mm -hmm. the coming years than, uh, and I think it's a transformation that's been underway for five years yeah. already. So give me an example. Um, Good example is is the march. You know, so we have this partnership, and this is what you and I were talking mm -hmm. about. You know, earlier, which was we have That's a partnership. Why I asked, Keith. Oh, okay. Geez, well, thank you. I didn't realize I laid myself up earlier to to, <laughs> exactly. to, to do this. But you know, um, AmFam uh, is underwriting an incredible virtual reality experience that we're doing with uh, digital domain and which we're doing with the uh, King Estate, where we have actually recreated. March in Washington. And this is a program that's being led by uh, a woman by the name of Mia Trams on our team who does all of our immersive experiences. And, and she is just incredible. And 
Um, what it is is you're, it's going to be at the DuSable Museum in Chicago at the end of this month, and consumers will be able to go in and they'll be able to put on a virtual reality headset and they'll find themselves all of a sudden immersed in a 10 to 15 minute experience where they're on Constitution Avenue and they're walking down the street and um, and they're surrounded by everything that you would have seen if you were marching on Washington the day of that speech. And as you're walking down Constitution Avenue, you slowly find yourself closer and closer and closer to Dr. Martin Luther King. And uh, ultimately you're 10 feet away and he's giving this speech. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the speech ends, it goes free at last, free at last, free at last, and he drops the mic. And in this experience, the one permissions that we've gotten is, is uh, he makes eye contact with you, and then he walks off. And for us... Oh, he doesn't do a commercial message? No, it's, a, okay. it's not brought to you by AmFam. <laughs> but, uh, no, but, 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 you know, but for us, you know, what AmFam has done is, is it's done an incredible... Um, partner in terms of underwriting the ability to, you know, um, tell history and show history to a new generation. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really good model for... Is that kind of deal, like, extensible that you can, like, apply that? Because that sounds like... I mean, look, you know how it is. Like, I mean, media brands like to talk about these, like, really deep and immersive mm -hmm. things that are really cool products and stuff like this. But at the end of the day, like you know, there's only so many you can do of these and the, the margins aren't great. Well, so the margin on this one is it's it's an excellent business for us. It's a great deal okay, this for is us a good ultimate. Because uh, it's great for the brand for and it's a really worthy thing. Um, but where it becomes interesting is, is where the extensions are, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, as I was telling you, you know, American Girl, uh, who uh, speaks to a completely different demographic, right? But we have time for kids, and us are in talks and, you know, we've been talking and talking and talking about, like, how can our two brands come together? Because American Girl is an incredible uh, empowerment uh, brand and Time for Kids is an incredible educational brand. And how could we bring Time for Kids into the American Girl world? And as we were having those conversations, it turns out that they have a 1964 Melody doll who, um, you know, uh, aligns perfectly with the vision of what this March uh, uh, partnership is. And we're now going to bring to life the March at the American Girl Store in Chicago. And this is ultimately the part of another way in which we're thinking about partnerships moving forward. Mm -hmm. How about, uh, and the last thing is about franchises. I mean, you mm -hmm. guys have some pretty iconic franchises. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the person of the year is probably... Probably the most noteworthy, at least from my perspective. And Time 100. Yeah, I'm just, I had to choose no, one. If okay, I had to choose one, I know you would put them tied. No, 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 I, I agree. I think Person of the Year is, is an incredible one. Yeah. So, I mean, how are you thinking about, I mean, because I think a lot of, a lot of publishers are thinking about franchises and how they can make money off them in all sorts of different ways. Sure. I mean, when I came into the organization, um, you know, one of the things that we've been very focused on is, is the investment in education of the team that existed prior to me and the team that joined. And uh, there's a lot of reading that's going on in the organization. And um, one of the books that I have everyone reading is The Publisher, uh, which is the history of time. And uh, it's not just time, the brand, but then ultimately how, you know, Henry Luce um, launched Time Inc. and how everything was born out of time. Um, 
And so what's funny for us is for many years as we looked at our brand, we realized that the brand was pigeonholed in certain areas because of larger corporate structures. And for the first time ever, um, we're untethered. So we can Mm -hmm. start to think about um, how can we experiment and think about the time brand moving into areas that it previously had not been able to play into because it was tethered to a larger corporate structure. And so if you look at person of the year this year, while yes, Greta Thunberg was named person of the year, right? We also did uh, entertainer of the year, which was Lizzo. We did uh, athlete of the year, which was the women's sports, uh, women's soccer team. And Mm -hmm. we did business person of the year, which was uh, Bob Iger from Disney. And so for us, our ability to start to see and understand how that um, that franchise can potentially play out in an area where the the organization was the seedling of all of these great brands that moved into the sports space, whether it was Sports Illustrated or the business space, whether it was Fortune or the entertainment space, whether it was Entertainment Weekly or People, was interesting for us. And this is some of the things that we're thinking about as we move forward. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be really interesting going forward to, at least from the outside, to compare like the path time takes versus Sports Illustrated. Went to very different um, owners, and it seems like very different uh, mindsets um, and and plans. I can't speak to their plans other than other than what I've read, um, and and I don't know if that that's even fair in its own right. Um, I can say that that you know where we're focused on is is. But I mean, there is like if you take assets, I mean, there's value in both these types of assets. There's value mm-hmm. in fortune. There are all these different assets that were magazines, mm-hmm. and there's absolute value in it. And I think. It's going to be interesting to see how people both build new value and and then balance that with extracting value because there's a lot of value to be extracted from these brands. So so I think that that's actually the key that, that I would point to when you think about where the evolution of our brand goes is um, uh, you can extract at the expense of what the brand's value ultimately is and you could get short-term gains or you can um, extract and expand knowing that you're building towards something greater. Yeah. I think that, you know, at the beginning you asked if being owned by the Benioffs uh, was a, a benefactor or a shrewd sort of business move. And I would say that, like, our intent is to run this as a really good business. And by the way, uh, when I was at Bloomberg, we had the same question over and over and over yeah. again. And we ran it as a really good business. You like, good places. Well, you know, what I would say is... is um, Kudos to Justin Smith in terms of he ran a really good business, and a lot of people um, don't don't understand that there's a tremendous value in thinking about having all of these resources, but making sure that you don't squander them. And so, yeah. for us, what the Benioff ownership does is it takes us out of thinking about what do we have to achieve in the next three months or six months or even a year, and it allows us to actually lift our head up and say, where do we want this brand to be? On January 1st, 2021, where do we want it to be in mm-hmm. four years, five years, and 10 years? Right. Where do we want it to be in in uh, 50 years from today? And that is a huge advantage because for us, we could now start to think about, okay, as we start to whittle down display advertising, um, which is something that will come down over time, like how can we whittle that down? But knowing that we're building towards something greater. Right, right. So- it's not like modeling it on someone else, but like, mm-hmm. is there anyone who has made this transition 
that you look at and and say, hey, they did a, a really good job because mm-hmm. I mean we're talking about taking what was in essence a media uh, a magazine brand and really you know making it into a modernized media uh, brand across all sorts of different platforms. Is there anyone that, that you like admire that you say, hey, look, they did? So so it's it's an amazing question. There's actually a lot of people. Um, when I first took this job, I got a lot of calls that said, congratulations. Dot, dot, dot. Let me tell you what this brand means to me. Okay. And what I realized was um, for the first time ever, I had a brand that was 97 years old and um, I, everyone had a personal relationship with this brand for one, one issue or another. And uh, for the most part, the relationship was with the magazine. And I, I used to read the magazine as a teenager growing up. I, and you know how many stories I've gotten about that? Um, uh, about people who have learned English from reading time? Um, uh, and people who, you know, uh, got the world news from reading time from countries that I would not expect distribution of time to be in so, so large, like India or in uh, the Middle East. And what I did was I actually did nothing for the first month and a half. I just spoke to, I would say, close to 40 CMOs or CEOs, um, and then a few heads of brands that I really admired. Um, The first... Uh, phone call on the heads of brands front that I spoke to was Meredith Levian over at the New York Times. And I think that what she and her team have done has been remarkable in terms of thinking about a transformation from a newspaper to mm-hmm. a um, fully immersive digital first sort of platform. And I just picked her brain on how should I be thinking about this? And it wasn't even her. It was you know, Raja over at MasterCard or Mark Pritchard over at P&G or Anna Griffin over at, at, at Smartsheet or, or Linda Boff over at GE. And everyone gave me really interesting perspectives because when you think about uh, P&G, it's a brand that constantly is evolving. When you think about MasterCard, it's a brand that was top of wallet and then all of a sudden had to go top of app. And so like mm-hmm. it was, how do you think about these evolutions? When you think about um, GE, it's, you know, industrial and how do you move to a sort of digital data centric, uh, you know, organization. And so I kept on asking everyone, like, how should we be thinking about this brand when I have this incredible heritage, but I need to start to move yeah. it forward? And all of them gave me sort of different slices of how they thought about their own respective brands. And and for me, that helped us shape a lot of our thinking about where were we going to be aggressive? Where were we going to sort of hold back? Where were we going to um, uh, think about where our strategy could initially be? Where would it be in three years? How do we have to get people to certain places? And and what do we want to preserve? Okay, so final thing on that in three years. Are we done? When you're back to... Uh, I'm not back in for three years now? <laughs> for three years. This is, I've been banned for years, three yeah. years. Okay, this now, is like... This is, we'll see. But let's say... <laughs> okay. Let's say in three years when you're back okay. for the eighth time, um, <laughs> <laughs> what are, where, where will time be there versus, you know, now? I know it's hard to look in the future, but nobody's going to hold you to it, so... No, I, I mean, I don't like to project um, things. What I would say is uh, I, I think in three years, my goal will be, well, in three years, we'll be celebrating our 100th anniversary. Oh, wow. And um, I, let, me, let me think on this one, but I promise you that, that when I, you know, six and a half months in, I can't claim to know that, that we've solved everything. But I think that right now where we are is is building a lot of infrastructure and, and beginning to understand that a lot of things 
there are a lot of opportunities for us to play in and and to build towards. Um, I think that what I'll do is is in in. Uh, six months from today, I'll send you an email, and you could okay. remind me, and you could just post. I'll it read to, it on you air. Could, you could post it on <laughs> on Instagram or Twitter. I'll read it okay? in your voice. And uh, thank you, like a uh, nasally Jewish voice. <laughs> um, no, but but I, I I'd feel comfortable if I just had another okay. six months to really just think about sort of where our North Star is going to be. Right now, after ten years of of what I would say is is neglect, we've been really focused, and a lot of people have been brought on board to. Um, uh, rethink the brand and I think there's a lot of interesting thoughts and conversations mm. going on that I would not want to call my shot today. Okay, so I have an easier bonus question. Okay, um, this you're bonus a bonus question now. You're a big, you're, you're a big book reader yes. um, and everyone should read books. Uh, so anyone in the media industry outside of the publisher, you can't, you can't name that one. I thought, first off, I would not recommend the publisher. Okay. What's a recent book that you would recommend that everyone reads that would help their perspective in figuring out like, you know, where media is going so um, I think everyone should read as much as they possibly could read. Um, it's my only other hobby outside of work, right, is, is reading. Um, and I don't read books about our industry. Um, I tend to read very random books that, that um, give me different perspectives on things. Um, I would say that one of the most interesting books that I've read in the past three months or so is that's not self-serving to time is a book by a guy named David Fry called Walls. And it's about the history of civilizations as they exist inside and outside of walls. And he starts back in ancient Mesopotamia and he um, talks about um, what happened and why did people create walls and they created it for safety because they didn't want to be invaded by um, outsiders. But where the book became really fascinating to me was he started to show how civilizations, A, started to evolve when they were inside walls, first when they were outside walls, and B, how civilizations clashed when they couldn't understand how the other civilization could um, actually survive in a completely different existence than they survived. And the reason I would actually recommend it for people in the media industry or in the marketing industry is um, it's one of those things where it forces you to start to think about um, your worldview versus other people's worldviews and um, how you see sort of your surroundings versus how other people see their surroundings. And um, for me, as, as I started to read it, I really started to think about like, am I looking through things through um, a wide enough lens or am I myopically focusing mm -hmm. on like what's right in front of me and that would be the book that I would recommend to everyone okay Keith thanks so much it's always a pleasure Brian and thank you all for listening we will be back next week with a new episode